And we're allowed to ask the question, why? Why does Jesus work in ways that we don't always understand? Why does Jesus lead us through hard and confusing times? Why does he so often appear to withhold from us some good thing or good outcome when we ask him for it? What good does it do for me? What goal does Jesus have in mind when he works slowly in our lives? Uh, The account of the raising of Lazarus, which is where we're coming today, uh, that account has answers to those questions. Our sermon title today is Raising the Dead and Waking the Living. And you'd think, or I would think anyway, that the big part of that job would be the raising the dead part. But what we're going to see is that raising Lazarus' body back to life hardly takes Jesus any time or effort at all. Instead, John in his gospel uses a lot of words and space and effort in order to show us that Jesus invests a considerable amount of his time and effort into waking the living. Yes, today we get to hear about the time Jesus spoke and Lazarus woke. And that's just plain exciting. It's a good story. It's incredible. But the truth is, Jesus did not raise the dead for the sake of the dead. Jesus raised the dead for the sake of the living, in order that some might come to believe in who he was and what he had come to do. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for the, the table before us that we were able to, separate, to, to celebrate this morning. Uh, what Jesus came to do for us, that he died in our place and he rose to give us life and to justify us and to restore us to you. We thank you for your word that we have before us right now and we come to you uh, in great need, asking that you will speak through your word this morning. We ask the Holy Spirit that you will bring conviction, that you will soften our hearts and open our ears so that we are able to receive what you have for us in your word today. I pray that you will prevent me from making any of it unclear, but that you will equip me, Holy Spirit, to make clear what it is you have said, God. Help me to make clear what Jesus has said and done for us and who he is. Help us to see him and trust in him. We ask that you will be working in us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. If you turn with me to John chapter 11... If you were here last week, we picked back up in the Gospel of John. We'd been away from it for for some time. And we picked back up in John chapter 11. And we saw in the beginning of the chapter that Jesus received some news from a family that he loves. Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. The news was Lazarus is sick. He's on his deathbed. But we read last week that because Jesus loved them, Because he loved them, he delayed his journey two days before he went to see them. And now we pick up in verse 17 this morning. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming... She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, when we read that opening sentence in verse 17, now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. What that really means is this. When Jesus got there, he was already too late. Hope had left the building. This is because Jewish tradition held that the spirit of the departed individual might hover around its own body for about three days, hoping it might have a chance to get back in. But after three days, in a hot, arid climate, in a time without air conditioning or refrigeration, a a dead body starts to get, I believe the technical term here, is icky. And when that happens... The spirit is said to lose all hope and move on. Well, I'm not getting back in there, right? That door's closed. Now, let me just point out that that three-day window is not spoken of in the Bible. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament teaches us that this is true. This is just something that the local superstition said. It's not like every time someone died, everybody sat around for three days watching the body, hoping that, I don't know, Jessica is just going to pop right back up. This happened exactly zero times when Jesus wasn't around. But that's the thing. Jesus was around. And even though we don't read read about him raising the dead very often, we do know that he's done it at least two times already. So we need to remember that Jesus intentionally delayed his visit by two days, which means that Jesus wanted to wait until things were a lost cause. Lazarus' body was four days dead. It was already decomposing and hidden from sight behind a stone. Jesus had arrived too late, and he'd made sure of that. Which is why we can sympathize with Martha's words in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And who hasn't? Which one of us hasn't had a reason to say, God, if only you were there? Or God, where were you? Lord, why did you let this happen? The writer of Psalm 42 certainly felt that way. He asks, has God forgotten me? And sometimes we ask that also. Both Martha and later on, we'll see her sister Mary, both of them represent to us kind of this this good example that we can take these questions to God. These questions that we don't have an answer to, we're allowed to take them to God in a way that is respectful and, and in faith, but we can, we can ask God those kind of questions without abandoning trust in him. Jesus' response, in verse 23, he looks at her and he says, your brother will rise again. We know what's coming, so we know what he means, and it's pretty incredible. But Martha isn't able to interpret it in that light. She hears Jesus' words kind of the same way 
you and I would hear someone consoling us in our loss, saying something like, it's going to be all right, or he's in a better place now, or you're going to see him again someday. Right? Those are kind words, and often they're true words. But Martha pretty much assumes Jesus is just saying, well, one day later, Lazarus' body will rise when everyone's body rises. And so Martha sort of takes it as this, well, there's a little bit of hope, but not hope for today. Hope for way off in the future. But Jesus is talking about right now. He's talking about the difference that he actually makes. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now let's just take a step for a moment away from what Martha can understand. Because she can't be expected to understand everything that Jesus is telling her right now. Not before Jesus' death and resurrection. But let's think about what we know this means. I've left you enough space, I think, in your sermon notes there, uh, that if you would like, you can draw a little chart to help see this visually. All you need is two columns. One column that says physically alive, and one column that says spiritually alive. And if you were to put checks or X's in those columns, you would have four possible combinations. Right? Someone could be spiritually alive and physically alive. Someone could be physically dead and spiritually dead. Or uh, some combinations in the middle. If you put a check in both columns, you have the first human beings, Adam and Eve, before sin and death entered the world. That's the way we were made to be. That's the way we will be someday in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, if someone has physical life but they're missing spiritual life. That is the natural fallen condition of any sinful man or woman after the curse of sin. Physically alive, for now, until our body kicks out on us, but the spiritual life that lasts forever and that enjoys closeness with God is missing because of sin. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus is claiming that he is both the way that someone goes from being dead to being alive, either physically or spiritually, and he's also saying that he himself is the spiritual life that most people are missing. So most people, if they have physical life but no spiritual life, and their body dies, what do they have left? Nothing. No life, no hope. The only hope there might be is that someday that body will come back to life again. That's the hope that Martha thinks Jesus is extending to her here. One day Lazarus will raise. But when Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, Jesus means that when someone comes to him and receives spiritual life, even though they might still physically die after that, they are still spiritually alive. In the greater sense, that person is very much alive. And when he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, he means that spiritual life that Jesus gives lasts forever. It's eternal life. Martha thinks about the the future physical resurrection of all bodies as maybe the only hope that Lazarus has right now. But Jesus is telling Martha, well, first of all, the future resurrection only happens through Jesus. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the reason there is any kind of hope. And second of all, the true spiritual life that never dies is available through Jesus right now. There's no need to wait to have the best kind of life. Lazarus, 
her brother is not truly dead because he believed in Jesus. Martha doesn't understand all that. She definitely has faith in Jesus. Definitely. But it's probably too much to have Jesus stand there and tell her, whoever believes in me shall never die, while her brother, who believed in Jesus, is currently dead. It's just too much. And Jesus asks her, do you believe this? She's able to say, yes, Lord. But notice that what she says she believes after that isn't the same thing Jesus just said. She's not able to repeat, I believe that anyone who believes in you will never die. But she does confess something really important. She says something that's incredibly important about Jesus. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So she believes that Jesus is the Christ, which is what we have, in a lot of ways, just remembered at this table in communion this morning. That Jesus is the one sent by God, God in the flesh, who would give his perfect life as a ransom so that our sins could be atoned for, so that we could have eternal life, and so that we could be restored to fellowship with God. Jesus came to die and raise for us to make life possible. He is the Christ. If Jesus was not the Christ, he wouldn't be the resurrection and the life. He had to have given his life and then broken the curse of sin and death in order to be the resurrection and the life. Those things are, are related. Martha just doesn't have the full... I guess, you know, she believes in Jesus, but she's not enjoying the fullness of what it means to believe in him because she hasn't figured it out yet. Jesus needs to stretch her faith. One of the reasons Jesus causes a crisis in a believer's life is to connect their creed or their confession or the things that they say they believe, to, con- to connect those things with their actual life, to connect what we say we believe with the way we live from day to day. Now, this first section, and you can almost think of, uh, of the topics that are going to be covered as a, as a sandwich in this passage this morning. So the first section that we've just talked about and the final section that deal with Martha, uh, they, they show us how hard Jesus is working to create this belief because it's so important. It shows us what, what we're missing out when we don't believe in Jesus and how much we stand to gain when our trust in him grows. But the middle section that we're coming to now reveals to us how important this kind of belief is from God's perspective. It shows us the very heart of God. Going on to verse 28, when she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him, when the Jews who were with her in, her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Martha went out to find Jesus and asked him some questions looking for answers. But Mary, her sister, needed that invitation of Jesus to come. She's a little more sensitive. And when she does receive the invitation and come, she uses the same words her sister did. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Mary stops 
there. She's not up for a debate or a conversation. She's not answering. She's not ready for any answers. She just falls down at Jesus' feet in a sign of trust and respect. Two different sisters experiencing the same kind of grief, but with different temperaments. They're working through it in a different way, and Jesus is going to deal with them both in, in a way that's fitting to them. Both of them kind of model how we are allowed to take our disappointments to Jesus and, and leave them there with him. But because of Jesus' love for both of them, he needs to stretch both of their faith to help them grasp more of why he came. In verse 31, there's mention about the Jews who were with Mary in the house consoling her. These would have been friends or acquaintances or maybe even like professional grievers who were spending the week with Mary and Martha to help them grieve enough or grieve properly for the loss of their brother. The fact that they follow Mary out to the place where Jesus was means that the rest of what happens in our passage kind of has a public feel to it. It's not private anymore. Now there's a, there's a crowd hanging around there. And in verse 33, we read, When Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This atmosphere of weeping and really wailing is what it was. This is what Jesus is going to respond to, and it's what's going to push the action forward. Some of you are probably well aware that we're creeping up on John 11:35, the deservedly well-known Bible verse, very famous. It's also the shortest Bible verse, two words, Jesus wept. Just ask a Bible-savvy junior high student to memorize any passage of their choosing, and they're flipping to John 11:35 before you can be done the request. When we get there in just a minute, it's worth noting that the, the Greek word that's written down for what Jesus does when he weeps is not the same word that is, uh, that's there to describe what Mary and the other Jews are doing. When Jesus weeps, he's not doing the same thing they're doing when they're weeping. Um, in verse 35, when it says Jesus wept, that word means he shed tears of sorrow. Jesus wept. In verse 33, when it says Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews with her weeping, that word is a different word. It means to be crying out loudly and wailing in grief. Like this is the daytime drama Oh, like this is, these are people who are, it's their entire purpose to make a big deal about what's going on. When Jesus sees this, he has a strong response. It says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved puts it mildly. I want to try and explain the feel of the emotion that it's recorded that Jesus felt at that point. So, we'll just take a breather here. I want you to take a wild guess how much I know about horses. And it might be safe to take whatever your guess is and decrease it significantly. And for those of you who have horses or you have a friend who has horses, you know that one horse that's kind of patient and, uh, and puts up with a lot and everybody gets to ride it for the first time? Forget about that horse. Okay, imagine me walking towards the new horse that's not even broken in yet. And by some miracle, I approach this horse from the side without so much as saying hello, and I get close enough to try and hop on its back. And I'm going to let you just savor the image of what happens next right now for yourselves. Okay, think about what it's going to look like as I get bucked off down into the mud. 
But what I really want you to focus on now is what sound does that horse makes while it's teaching me a lesson? You know that angry, indignant snort of disgust? That raw gut emotion, how dare you? That is the word that's used to describe what Jesus feels on the inside when he sees this kind of showy, end-of-the-world weeping and wailing going on. In other words, these people aren't just sad they've lost a friend. These people have given way to despair. They're acting like there is no hope. You know, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 urges Christians to not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Well, that's what's going on here. People who know Jesus, people who are in Jesus' very presence, are acting like the rest of the world. They're acting like they have no hope. And Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, sees this and he is troubled. He's outraged. He's indignant and angry. But what is Jesus angry at? Well, he's surrounded by the results of sin. Sickness and death and brokenness and fear and despair and sorrow and hopelessness, all of it, the result of a sin-broken world. Jesus sees some of his closest friends like sheep without a shepherd, lost and hopeless. Now, we know that a good and holy God ought to respond in anger and wrath and righteous indignation wherever there is sin. But here, Jesus has the body and the emotions of a human being, and we actually witness God feel that anger and go through it. And the worst part of it all is the unbelief of these people who should know better than to act that way when he's around. Unbelief is itself the very root of sin. Jesus sees the state that his friends are in, and he's outraged. We see the heart of God on display here. We also see in that same heart that there's not just anger, but there's also a deep sadness. Jesus is not only angry about sin, he's also brokenhearted over it. The one that gets angry also weeps. Now, in our weakness, we might sometimes act like people who don't know God when things don't go our way. When we're hurt or broken or let down, by the consequences of our own sins or the sins of others or just an all-around broken world, sometimes we might sin in unbelief and find ourselves acting like people who have no hope by slipping into this kind of woe-is-me, what's-the-point despair. But Jesus shows us how we should respond to sin, how God responds to sin. Indignant anger and sorrow, we ought to feel the same way that Jesus did when we're confronted by the results of sin. But there is a difference. We can't really do anything about it. The whole point of this passage is that the one thing we can do in the middle of it is look to Jesus and trust the one who is the resurrection and the life, whose death atones for sin. The response of a sinner is to look for a savior. The response of a sinner to sin is to look for a savior. That's what makes Jesus different. Jesus isn't a sinner. He's the Savior. When Jesus gets angry and sad about the results of sin, he is able to do something about it. Which is what we should probably understand when we see that the next thing Jesus says is, where have you laid him? I don't think Jesus asked the question because he needed the information. Those are action words. That's the equivalent of, where's my coat? Or get the car. 
because we're going now. So they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So Jesus' tears are badly misinterpreted by the crowd. They think he weeps for Lazarus. I don't think that's the case. Jesus knows Lazarus is alive in him. In fact, Lazarus is probably, I suspect, at this moment in the story, in a far better place than he will be at the end of the story. Lazarus stands to gain the least here. right? He's going to come back into a sin-broken world again. And his body is going to die a second time. Jesus weeps for Martha and Mary and probably his disciples and the rest of the crowd because they're so blind. There's some irony in the fact that these doubters ask, oh, since Jesus opened the eyes of the blind, couldn't he save his friend from dying? Well, the answer is yes. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' death, but Jesus is going about right now something that's far more difficult. He's trying to open the eyes of these spiritually blind people. Jesus isn't about to raise the dead for the sake of the dead. He is raising the dead for the sake of the living. You notice that in verse 38... As they move on, Jesus' anger flares back up again when he hears this misinterpretation of his tears. Then Jesus, deeply moved, outraged, again, came to the tomb. Before we move on, there is, there's one application that we probably need to apply to ourselves right here. If Jesus responds with such a powerful emotion when he sees the people who know him acting in unbelief, in despair, And hopelessness like the rest of the world? Is there anything in my life, or in your life, or in the life of our church that makes Jesus feel that way right now? Do we really act like people who are free from sin and doubt? Is there a heavy sense of of hope and joy in our lives, or do we get so caught up in the things that we might possess and lose and covet in this world that we don't really look all that different? Jesus didn't raise the dead for the sake of the dead. He did it so those who are living might believe in him and their faith in him might grow. So we can benefit today from what happens next just as much as the people who were there originally. The most tense moment in this story is not at the end when Jesus says to Lazarus, come out. But it's in verse 39 when Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been in there four days. When it comes time to roll away the stone, Martha's afraid. Even though she earlier said to Jesus, even even now I know whatever you ask from God, he will give it to you. It's just too much to bear when it comes time to expose her brother's dead body. It's too much to hope for when Lazarus has been in the grave four days. We need to remember again that Jesus planned it this way. He arrived too late on purpose because he wants Martha and Mary and his disciples and you and I to understand that what seems impossible for us, what is impossible for us, is possible for him. So before we go any further, we should ask, what is there in your life, in your past, in your heart, that if Jesus were to come to you today and say, take away the stone, let's deal with that. 
what is the thing that seems too big or too far gone or too rotten or too far past hope for you to let Jesus have a look? Remember, Jesus is not done with a believer just because they confess he's Lord with their lips, but he wants them to follow him with their lives. And nothing is too far gone for him. Jesus has poured out his life for yours, to free you from sin, to give you eternal life, a life that lasts forever and begins here and now. You know, it could be a sin that's been allowed to fester in the dark, something that's gone on so long, you've started to think it'll just stick around forever. But now the Spirit of God has his finger on that place. Take away the stone. Could be someone that you've never been able to forgive for a hurt that they've done to you. Could be some damage you've caused to someone else you've never been able to own up to and apologize for. Take away the stone. It could be something or someone that you have lost. Some loss that's caused you to tighten your grip on the things that you have left and you don't trust anyone, not even Jesus, with the things that you have control over anymore. Take away the stone. And you could say to me, but you don't understand. You don't know the way I've been hurt. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know how long it's been since I've closed that door. And you're right, I probably don't have a clue. But Jesus does. Jesus is the one who is saying, take away the stone. There was a reason Jesus waited four days until Lazarus' body was starting to rot. Until there was no hope left. He did it for me and for you. So that we would know that he knows how hard it is. And he knows how hopeless it seems. But he is the resurrection and the life. Read, uh, starting in verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Just in case there's been any doubt about what Jesus is most concerned about through this whole episode, he does everyone a favor by drawing back the curtain and showing us his intimate prayer life with the Father. As far as Jesus is concerned, Lazarus is as good as raised already. That's not a cliffhanger. He knows the Father has already granted this sign. Jesus' real prayer request is for the purpose that the sign was given, so that they may believe you sent me. What's John's purpose in writing his gospel? John 20, 31. These particular signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's Jesus' purpose in raising Lazarus from the grave? What's Jesus' purpose in allowing his people to reach the end of their rope? Right there in verse 42. That they may believe that you sent me. That's what he's concerned about. And then the voice of the one who is the resurrection and the life commands, Lazarus, come out. The dead man who had died came out. Don't you love how immediate that reaction is? There's no dramatic pause. There's no struggle. 
There's no drum roll. This is an intentionally hopeless situation. Four days in the grave, a decomposing body, and immediately, completely, that body is restored and comes out of the tomb. So again, what is behind the stone in your life? Is it as bad as a rotting body? Maybe. That's the point. What are you afraid of that could justify stubborn unbelief to the one who did this? Jesus. It's been actually remarked, I think kind of correctly, but a little cheekily, that if Jesus had just said, come out, and he didn't specify Lazarus, all the tombs would have given up their dead. That's the authority that he carries. And just one last point from the text here before we close. And that is, we can see that Lazarus' resurrection was not the same kind of resurrection that Jesus would go through. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with a perfect, imperishable body that would last forever. It's the kind of body that believers will one day have in the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus' tomb was found empty, the grave clothes were left behind on the bed because his body passed straight through them. When Lazarus experiences is very different. It's a temporary physical return to his old body. And this kind of seems to be a fitting picture of the situation that we find ourselves in. If you believe that Jesus was sent by God to save, then Jesus gives you a call from the dead to rise back to spiritual life. But at this present time, we don't have new bodies. We still have our old flesh. It's not cut out for eternity. It's going to give out and die. And our old flesh gets trapped up by our old sinful habits and hurts. Like Lazarus, we hear Jesus' voice, and the dead is raised to life, but that life is tangled up in grave clothes until someone helps take them off. Jesus' last command here, unbind him and let him go. That's a double-edged job for us in the church, isn't it? It means we have to love and help the ones Jesus has loved and saved by getting them out of their old dead person clothes. It means that each one of us needs to remember that spiritually speaking, we were as fresh as a four-day-old corpse when Jesus saved us. There's no pride there. That means we better not think we're above getting our hands busy and helping someone else step into the life that Jesus has bought for them. It means that every one of us needs help as much as the next one to step into that life. Hebrews 12, 1-2 asks us that looking to Jesus, we might lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Well, there are some weights and chains that only come off when you let another person help. Jesus still speaks today. He still moves stones. He still brings the dead back to life. And if anyone hears his voice today and responds, believing in him, rolling away the stone and confessing their need for him, if anyone comes in faith or has his or her faith increased today, that would be more powerful and more spectacular and with greater eternal significance than what Jesus did when he called Lazarus' corpse back. Let's bow our heads. We're going to pray together. And I'd like to just pray specifically for several different groups of us here. So I want you to listen and consider if the group that I'm describing uh, contains you. And if I'm going to be praying for a group that doesn't contain you, then I'd ask that you please join join with me as we pray for others. But first, there might be some here today who have never really believed that Jesus is who he says he is. The Christ 
who came to die for your sins, who was raised because he was sinless God himself. The resurrection and the life, the way to eternal life and the one that gives that life. We have this record of what Jesus said and did so that by hearing it, you might believe in him. You might be forgiven of the eternal consequence of your sins and you might receive eternal life. There might be some here today who need to hear and respond to the command that Jesus gave to Lazarus, come out, wake up from the dead and follow me. If that's you, we're going to pray for you now. Father, there might be some here who don't know you, but who today you have been speaking to through your word. Lord, we ask that you would help those ones to see Jesus with eyes of faith and to come to him. I thank you that you do this work patiently and faithfully in the lives of those who hear about you. I thank you that you have revealed to us that you would not leave sin unpunished. You're holy and perfect, and we can expect you to be a good judge. We thank you that in your love you sent Jesus to bear that punishment in our place. So we pray and we join our prayers to Jesus at the tomb when we ask that, it would, that this miracle would have been done so that those who hear about it believe that you sent him. Father, we, we thank you that we know what will happen when someone turns to you because you've shown us your love in our Savior, Jesus. There's a second group here today that we're going to pray for in a minute. And uh, it might be that you know that what you confess with your lips about Jesus and the life that you live following him don't line up. That there might be an area in your life where your attitudes don't line up with the hope and the life and the faith that Jesus came to make possible for you. It might be something you've known about for a long time, or it might be something that the Holy Spirit has just convicted you of recently. But you know that you need to obey Jesus' words. And today he's saying to you, take away the stone and deal with that. Let me at that. Jesus has work to do to grow your faith, and you will need to trust him in that area that seems risky or vulnerable. We're going to pray for you now. Father, we know that you choose to work in ways that are best for us, but that aren't always obvious to us. And we thank you for knowing best. Thank you, Jesus, that you waited until Lazarus' body was ravaged beyond hope before you restored it. Because that means that there is hope that you can and will address the broken things in your people today. There might be some here today who are terrified, like Martha was, that if they let you in to that area of your life, it'll end in embarrassments and failure. But we also know that without your work, every one of us is as good as dead. Jesus, we have your promise. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So I ask that as you teach sinners to come into the light and to confess and to be made well by you, that you would be working in lives to reveal the glory of God. Help your people to trade in flimsy pride or paper-thin appearances for the freedom that comes from walking in the light and the joy that comes from displaying what God can do in them. And finally, Lord, we pray for all of us here. I ask that you would give us eyes to see the work that you're doing in those around us. Teach us from your example, Jesus. Teach us to be outraged and saddened by the effects of sin 
in the world around us. Don't let us ignore it. Keep us from falling into despair and hiding from it. Teach us to look to you with great expectations and to obey you when you command us to unbind and loose the old sinful habits and reputations that many carry around with them still. Help us to rely on your grace as we receive it from one another. Remind us that each one of us was hopeless, dead in sin without you. And let us joyously join you in your work as we loose those around us and as we let those around us help us. We give you the glory for all that you have done and will do in our midst. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. May the words and the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first and the last, who died and came to life, go with us all from here.